and uh, one of them you'll have met already in the Gospels, and he is well known, and that is Nicodemus. You'll remember him from the famous encounter with Christ in John chapter 3. He was a teacher in the church, he was an elder, and yet he was unconverted, and he didn't even understand the need to be born again. The Lord said, are you a master or a teacher in Israel? And you do not know these things. So the Lord had to tell him about the need to be born again by the power of the Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. So we know him. The other one is the one that's mentioned in this verse, and this is his first appearance in the gospel narrative. Joseph, from a place called Arimathea. Now, these two men uh, don't just appear unexpectedly at this point in the narrative, but they actually become very, very prominent. Uh, to the surprising extent that they take over everything to do with the disposal of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything to do with it. It was Joseph who took him down from the cross when he was crucified, who suspected that that would be the case. Joseph took him down. It was he and Nicodemus who removed the nails from his body. It was he and Nicodemus who rubbed spices into his body and who covered his body with beautiful, expensive, fine, white linen. It was they who carried him and carried him as far as Joseph's own tomb, which he had hewn out for himself, a beautiful sepulchre hewn out of the rock. There they added further spice to the Lord, and they laid him where Joseph thought he would have laid himself. So everything from taking down the body to embalming it and entombing it, all that was done by these two, whom we had hardly heard of, probably the last people you would expect to do it. Now, the Scriptures highlight two things about these men, and both of them deserve our attention. The first thing it highlights is that they are secret disciples. Secret disciples. The second thing that the Scripture highlights about them is that they are rich. Now, I want to look at both these facts with you, and I want to see what they're really saying to us, and uh, especially what they're saying to us before we come to the Lord's table. Tonight, uh, we'll focus on the secret discipleship, and tomorrow, God willing, we'll focus on their wealth. So, tonight... Uh, secret disciples. Now, in fairness, the Bible only stresses that in connection with, with Joseph of Arimathea. We're told in verse 38 that he was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So, we're told it explicitly about him. But I think it's implicit in what's said about Nicodemus. After all, it's mentioned in verse 39 that Nicodemus, who at first came to
to Jesus by night, under the cover of darkness, he comes now out into the open, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. I think there's a deliberate contrast there between the one who was hiding under the cover of night and the one who is now coming out openly, as it were, on Jesus' side. After all, you read nothing, or virtually nothing. Uh, I shouldn't say nothing. You read very little to indicate that he is on Jesus' side. But it's very plain at this point that he is on Jesus' side. So they are both secret disciples. Now, secret disciples is a term that we sometimes use ourselves. I don't know if you're familiar with the language. We tend to use it of people who may be Christians, but for some reason have not come to the Lord's table. We use it of them. We sometimes use it too of those who don't acknowledge that they actually are Christians or who don't overtly claim that about themselves. But nonetheless, we suspect that they are secret disciples. Uh, in other words, in that last case, people who just lack assurance. Now, perhaps we need to begin there in a way because we need to be careful when we use the term secret disciples. What do we really mean? What should we mean? What does the Bible mean? After all, these two people are not lacking assurance. We're not told anywhere that Joseph of Arimathea was unclear whether he was a Christian or not. We're not told that Nicodemus was unsure whether or not he was a Christian. Their problem isn't a lack of assurance. It's a lack of courage. It's a lack of courage. In other words, they knew who they were, but they weren't really doing something about it. They weren't doing what they ought to do about it. Now, sometimes the reason why we don't do what we should do is because we are unsure whether we are Christians or not. Maybe that is why some of you have never come to the Lord's table because you are unsure. But others of you may be sure enough, deep down, but you lack courage. And perhaps even you've disguised that lack of courage under the cover of a lack of assurance. I mean, maybe it's too easy to go to that refuge. Maybe it's too easy to say, well, I'm, I'm not 100% sure if I'm a Christian. Have you ever stopped to wonder who is 100% sure that they're a Christian? But maybe you've taken refuge under that. Well, I'm not 100% sure if I'm a Christian. So it's better perhaps to stay away than to come to the table of the Lord. Um, I'll deal a bit more with that in a moment. But this kind of thinking is so important to confront that we need to take a closer look at these two secret disciples to see what exactly they are teaching us. I think the first thing that we need to notice is that it should be a surprise to us to find a secret disciple at all in the Bible. In fact, if, if you've been reading the Bible seriously up to this point, you'll really be quite surprised to discover that the Lord has genuine disciples who are actually in secret. Why should you be surprised? 
Well, because the Bible emphasizes so clearly the importance of confessing the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing him with your mouth. It's not spoken of in the Bible as something that's optional. In fact, it's spoken of as something that's of the very essence, really, of being a Christian. And if that sounds strong, well, I mean it that strong. If you turn, and I think it might be useful for you just to turn at this point to Romans chapter 10, you'll see what I mean. That's on page 1303. Page 1303. And in verse 8, it tells us that the Word of God says that the Word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, Now, notice verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, these are quite stunning words, really. You would expect that, if you know the gospel well, you would have expected simply to read that if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, then you will be saved. So, heart belief and verbal confession are bound up with salvation. Now, I think it's fair to say that confession with the mouth here is a little bit more than saying something. It's not less than saying something, but it's a little bit more. In other words, I think it's meant to cover the outward life generally. In other words, uh, the emphasis in the text is on uh, life and lip, or inward and outward. If you really believe in your heart that God raised this Lord Jesus from the dead, if you believe that in your heart, and if you live that out, here, especially by confession with your mouth, which covers, I think, lifestyle, then indeed you are saved. And notice, he emphasizes that in verse 10. He, he doesn't mitigate it. He, he doesn't take away the force of it. He actually emphasizes it. For, he says, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. In other words, in your heart, inwardly, through faith, you are right with God. You have righteousness. From that point onwards, you are making confession with your mouth and your life until salvation is complete. That's the point there, you see. He again is connecting justification and sanctification, and he's connecting sanctification with just testifying to Christ, especially with our mouth. With the heart, we believe to righteousness. With our mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So, confessing Christ is really integral to what a Christian is. I want you to think about that. We are witnesses. Witnesses. Now, this confession 
is necessary even in testing situations. Let me again um, call you to turn back this time to Matthew and chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Page 1122, double 1122. Matthew 10 and verse 27. Now, this is Jesus speaking to his own disciples here. Now, listen to what he says. Whatever I tell you in the dark, he says, you speak it in the light. Don't be afraid. Speak it in the light. What you hear in the ear, what I tell you, Preach it on the housetops. And don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. That's basically people. But rather fear him, that is God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And now if you move down to verse 32, look at how he reinforces this. Therefore, he says, whoever confesses me before men, him... I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now these are solemn and searching words. Confess me, I'll confess you. Deny me, I'll deny you. Again, you see the importance of saying who we are. Even when the situation is tough, demanding, and life-threatening. Clearly, the Lord is envisaging a life-threatening situation there. <clears throat> now, I'm conscious that there are one or two difficulties connected with that. And I think it would be foolish to say that we're supposed to advertise ourselves in all kinds of situations, for example, in all kinds of persecution. It's not righteous to go out and advertise yourself and so on, or expose yourself but the text is clear that if you're required to do so, you say who you are. In other words, if a test comes your way, you say who you are. If a table is furnished and the call is to those who are on the Lord's side, who is on the Lord's side? Then if you are on the Lord's side, you indicate that you are on the Lord's side. You will not deny him, but you will confess him. After all, the implication here is that to be silent is to betray him. Really, when it comes to confessing or denying, where's the middle ground? Where is the middle ground between confessing and denying? When you are asked to say something, where is the middle ground between confessing and denying? Silence is a denial, yes? Well, that's what the text is calling us to. Confess me, I'll confess you. Deny me, I'll deny you. So it seems from the Bible that a public confession is bound up with being a Christian. So where does that leave us in connection with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? Well, let's begin with this, that the Bible first of all tells us that they are disciples. And they come before us as genuine disciples. Now, we don't know when they became disciples. Take Joseph of Arimathea, first of all. 
I think it's probably fair to say that he was already a believer. He was a man of God before Jesus ever began preaching. He is called, in one of the Gospels, a good man. Now, we might use that expression pretty casually of somebody. Oh, well, that's a good man, or she's a good woman. But when it's used in the Bible, um, it's used in the sense of a, a just man, a believer, a holy man. We're told that... Um, I've forgotten, was it Stephen or Barnabas, was a good man, full of faith and the Holy Ghost. One of them, anyway. He, for he was a good man. I think it was Barnabas. For he was a good man, full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And a good man there, and a good man here, is, well, what the Bible describes a good man, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. By the way, you'll notice the relationship between that text and the Romans text earlier. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. The Lord is connecting that there to speech. He speaks good things. It's the good treasure in the heart that makes a good man. He's known by the good words on his lips, partly, but it's the good treasure on the heart that makes him a good man. In other words, in the biblical sense, if you, if you see what you would call a nice guy or a nice woman, that's not what the biblical narrative calls a good man or a good woman. So Joseph is described as a good man. We all, we're also told that he waited for the kingdom of God. Now again, that's a special Jewish expression. It means that the messianic hope, if you like, was dear to his heart. And it also means that he waited for the Messiah or waited for the kingdom of God in the way in which the true people of God waited for it. In other words, we're not here thinking of uh, a zealot or a particular kind of Pharisee that looked for a certain kind of messianic deliverer. We're talking here about people like Simeon, that old man who was waiting for the consolation of the kingdom of God himself. And when Jesus was presented to him as an infant, he took him to himself, and he blessed God that he saw that day, and he blessed the mother of that child, and pronounced a great thing concerning that child. You're to think of someone like Anna, the prophetess, who spoke of the redemption that was coming. She waited for the kingdom of God with a spiritual longing, a spiritual desire, because she loved God, she knew God, and she wanted to see the days of the Messiah. And in God's good and gracious providence, they both saw it. Just the beginnings of it, the child in his infancy. But they both rested in peace. The nunc dimittis, now let thy servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. It's in that sense that Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God. In other words, when he heard Jesus preach, and when he saw Jesus' miracles in Jerusalem, he recognized him. Now, he was quiet about it. Maybe he put his toe in the water and discovered that nobody else thought as he did in the Sanhedrin but he recognized him. 
And the conviction grew the more he heard and the more he saw that this was the Christ, the Son of God. Is that how faith came into your own heart? The more you heard, the more you believed that this really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he just becomes a believer. He becomes a believer. He was earlier, but he recognized the Christ. What about Nicodemus? Well, he had obviously come to faith much more recently. Perhaps a few months before this, at most, say, three years. When we first see him in John 3, he's unconverted. He doesn't even know what conversion means. He's not the first minister in the church who was in that situation. Now, the thing is about the two of them and about anybody is that you can't become a disciple without coming under lordship. I hope we understand that. When you come to faith, you don't just come to Jesus, you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. When you really believe, you believe in a Savior and a Lord. You commit yourself to a truth, to a person, and to a way of life. There's no other way of becoming a Christian. In other words, discipleship involves following him and being obedient to him. So that means that even though these two are in secret, the faith must somehow be coming out of them. It must be coming out of their lips somehow. It must be coming out of their lives. Is it not a glimpse of it you see in John chapter 7? You don't need to turn it up, but we read the narrative. Do you not see a glimpse of it? Is there not an indication there that something's going on in Nicodemus' own heart? He's in a hostile meeting of the Sanhedrin. The officers who are sent out to, captive, to take Christ captive come back, and they say, why are you empty-handed? And they say, because nobody ever spoke like this man. It's impossible to seize him. It's, it's impossible to seize him, not because the people are for him. They are for him, all right, but that wouldn't stop us seizing him. But we can't seize him because of who he is and what he says and the power of his words. Nobody ever spoke like this man. Yes, that's what the Christian comes to realize too. But the Sanhedrin are infuriated. Do any of the rulers believe in him? Do any of us believe in him? And suddenly a voice pipes up saying, is it right to judge this man before we've heard him? And that's all he needs to say because they just turn on him like a pack of wolves. Who are you? Do you know the scriptures? Search them. No prophet arises out of Galilee, which, by the way, is not the truth. But anyway, that's unless they meant the prophet Unless they meant by that that the Messiah cannot arise out of Galilee. Are you one of them yourself? Notice the hostility. And we're not told that Nicodemus said any more. But it's interesting that he said that. It's interesting that he said that. You know, one of the signs that we have passed from darkness to life and that we have developed a saving interest in the Lord, is that, that we can't really sit by when he's being spoken ill of. We can't. We're constrained to say something. Why? Because we love him and honor him. We value him. 
We adore him. We worship him. And we cannot bear him to be spoken ill of like that. I mean, do you find that in your own heart? Um, And I'm not speaking here of, well, I was going to say a casual swear word. Perhaps I shouldn't even use that expression. No swear word is casual, but you understand what I mean. That in itself can bring grief to your heart. But I mean, when somebody, when somebody in a sustained way does him down or takes away his honor and glory, do you not feel that you want to speak? And not just out of pride or out of party interest, but because you value this man. You want to stand with this man. I mean, there are people in this life, there are people maybe beside you or close to you that you love and you wouldn't bear to be dishonored. You'd stand up for your father or for your mother or for your brother or your sister. Do you stand that way for the Lord? Do you feel that way for the Lord? Well, Nicodemus obviously did. But that is as far as he went at this point. For some reason, he could not say more. But that's the problem, you see. There were two of them in the group. You're talking about 70 people. 70 powerful, influential people. The 70 most influential people in the country. And there's two of them who have a different mind about the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, both of them are in the situation where acknowledging Christ's lordship is difficult. Members of the Sanhedrin They are the government officials, basically. They are the cabinet of the day. That's who they are. Everything goes through them. They rule. And the test for Joseph and Nicodemus is, will you confess me before them? And they're both gripped by fear. The text tells us that. Um... If you're back at John chapter 19 in verse 38, we're told that they were secret disciples because of fear of the Jews. Fear of the Jews. It was bad for them both. It might be worse for Joseph of Arimathea because one of the Gospels actually tells us an an interesting detail about him. It tells us that he was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Now, to be a member of the Sanhedrin made you prominent anyway. But he was a prominent member. What that means is that everybody knew him. It means that everybody respected him. Everybody admired him. Some of them might not have been quite the same way, but he was. He was up there. When Joseph spoke, the Sanhedrin listened. When Joseph spoke, people listened. A prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Oh, we all have things to lose, I suppose, when we stick to Christ. We all have things to lose. He definitely had a lot to lose. The Bible tells us that the fear of man brings a snare. Sometimes the fear of man actually determines whether we are genuine Christians or not. Some people are so afraid of man that the fear of God never takes proper root in their hearts. 
You find an example of that actually very early on in John's gospel. Uh, we're told that when Jesus first came to Jerusalem and he preached the gospel, we're told that um, when he was there, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. Now that sounds very promising. They believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. In other words, he knew that their belief wasn't genuine. It then immediately goes on to say that there was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus who came to him by night and said, we know that you're a teacher from God. No one can do the signs that you're doing unless God is with you. And Jesus said, you must be born again, Nicodemus. In other words, you're like those people. You believe because you've seen the signs. But I know that you don't really believe. You're not committed. You don't really understand. You don't really understand who I am. You don't understand what the Messiah must do. That's why he goes on to say that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's teaching Nicodemus, not because Nicodemus is a living man, but because Nicodemus is a dead man. And the Lord Jesus knows that the Spirit of God will take the truth that he is now preaching to Nicodemus and he will apply it to his heart. I think there's an encouragement there for preaching the gospel generally anyway. I mean, you may be sitting under the gospel dead, but God knows that you live. And God knows that you will live partly, maybe, because of the word that's spoken to you even tonight. That, of course, is a motivation for me to preach. It's an encouragement for you as a Christian to pray concerning those who are not. Jesus did not refrain from preaching because he was preaching to a dead man. He knew that the Spirit was able to breathe upon him and to give him life. Who knows? Maybe it was that night itself when Jesus spoke of the Spirit working like the wind blowing in the trees. Maybe it was that night itself that the seed first took root in Nicodemus. Maybe, maybe it was. So the fear of man can sometimes reveal people who are just not converted. You're far more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. Far more concerned. But sometimes the fear of man is a hurdle that even the Lord's people, those who are truly the Lord's people, it's a hurdle that they stumble at. And that's why the Lord sets a series of tests before them and before us all to see if we will overcome it. Do you remember, for example, the woman who had the issue of blood? She had been bleeding for 12 years. She was slowly dying, really. The Lord healed her. She was healed by touching the hem of his garment. She was all ready to go home. But the Lord turned around and he said, Who touched me? The disciples said, there's a thick crowd around you and everybody's touching you and jostling against you. And he said, no, no. He said, who touched me? 
with a different touch. Who touched me with faith and with hope and with expectation? And Mark tells us that he turned round to see her who had done this thing. And then we're told that she came forward. And she told her story. And the Lord said, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. And she left in a much better condition than had she gone straight home. Yes? She'd have gone straight home healed, all right, but she wouldn't have been quite whole. She'd have gone home, and after a while she'd have been wondering, was that really my faith, or was I healed just in the way that maybe some lepers were healed and they never acknowledged it? Does it mean that I'm really a Christian? Um, or that I, I just got better, you see? But because she came out, because she hurdled the fear of man, because even after being 12 years a recluse, she was able to step forward in front of the people and say, yes, I touched you and you did this for me. Because of that, she heard the Lord say, daughter, your faith has made you whole. She had assurance, you see. Why? Because she hurdled the fear of man. She didn't hurdle the fear of man because she had assurance. She had assurance because she hurdled the fear of man. What a difference. We won't hurdle the fear of man till we get assurance. It's the wrong way round. That's the cart before the horse. And an obvious test for us comes three times a year. Like I said earlier, who is on the Lord's side? And you've been thinking for long enough that you are a Christian. But, oh, it's hard. It's hard to go in front of that session. What will people think? What will people say? What will people do? What pressures will be on me? What will be said in my workplace? How will I tell people that I know? Yeah, all these things are real. But if you're a true Christian, God is testing you. And he wants you to hurdle all these things. He wants you to hurdle them. If you're a true Christian, it's a serious sin to fall at that hurdle. I'm not going to be one of these people who just excuse failing to profess the Lord. I think it is a serious sin. There's a mitigation because in some places... People have been frightened to death of doing it. And that, I'm not slow to say, and I hope I say it humbly, is a fault that largely comes from the pulpit. I've said it before, do we really think that the Lord provided a sacramental means of grace that was so terrifying that his own people should forever be frightened of it and never come to participate of it? Is that really the gospel? 
Is that really the provision of the Lord's Supper? Can't be. It can't be. It's right to reverence it. It's right to humble ourselves in coming to it. But it's not right to be so afraid of the Lord's festival that we forever stay away from it. On the ground that it's safer not to go. Dear me. What happens if we fail to hurdle this? First, we will lack assurance progressively. The supper was given partly to strengthen that very thing. How terrible that we should use our lack of it as a reason just not to come at all. You will lack assurance progressively. You will also lose blessings. The many things that the Lord attaches to honoring his name openly at his table will pass you by. Will pass you by. You'll live in the shadows thinking of yourself as neither one thing nor the other. And other people too will wonder, are you one thing or the other? And you will also set a bad example for others who will follow you. They may look at you and say, well, if they're not there, how can I be there? And please, let's not excuse it by saying, oh, I just haven't got the strength. I'll tell you why that is never a proper excuse. Because it's not strength that you lack, it's courage. Do you use a lack of strength as a reason for not keeping other commandments? The word of God says to you, do this now in remembrance of me. And you say, well, I've never had the strength. Very well. When Gehazi stole the Babylonian garments... Did he have a right to come to Elisha and to say, well, you know, I just didn't have the strength to resist it. He'd have got short shrift. Would David have the right to say, well, you know, I never got the strength to resist Bathsheba. Really, was that the problem? Would Would it have been right for the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan to say, well, you know, I just, I was on my way home and I never got the strength to cross the road and just help that guy. It's not a reason, is it? He didn't have the courage. Don't use lack of strength as a reason for not going to the table. You must learn to label it right. Strength isn't the issue. Courage is. So what do Joseph and Nicodemus do? First of all, on this big night in their lives, they make a protest. We're told solemnly in the words of Luke that these two men did not consent to the decision and the deed to hand Jesus over to crucifixion. In good old Presbyterian language, we would say that they dissented and protested disassociated themselves completely from the decision. In so doing, they are disassociating themselves from the Sanhedrin 
They're disassociating themselves from their prominence, from their respect, from their status, from the society in which they lived and moved, everything they knew, everything that was important to them, their reputation, which is so hard to lose. They said farewell to it. And they knew it. They knew it. For us, too, there will be something. Something that you're forsaking, too, by coming to the Lord's table. Oh, it's a pity if that's the only way we can see it. And, you know, I don't think we'll come to the Lord's table if that's the only way we can see it. We we won't come there if we just feel driven there. We must be drawn there. And we're not to be drawn there by me or by anybody else, but by the Lord and by a desire to honor the Lord, and by your love for the Lord. But when you identify with the Lord and with his people, you will be going outside the camp and you will be carrying his reproach. There will be friends who don't like it. There will be friends who may disassociate from you. And some people may try to tell you that nothing much needs to change. Well, let me tell you that it will change. If you're going to be true to who you are in stepping forward to be with the Lord, there will be others who won't really want to be with you anymore. I'm not advocating that you go about busy severing all your friendships. I'm only pointing out that some of them will sever. And that's that. And it won't take you to sever it. They'll sever it for you. Because that's the way it is. Jesus made that plain. That's the way it is. But they entered their protest that night. They came out. They came out. And as well as entering their protest, they also took courage. Mark tells us that Joseph took courage and went into Pilate to ask for the body of the Lord. The Jews were just about to do the same thing because they wanted him down and buried on their terms. Joseph just went in and he asked Pilate, but he took courage. That's a great expression, that. He took courage. Doesn't say he got strength. It says that he took courage. And you know what? Because he took courage, he got strength. Do you see? Do you see how these things work? It's the very reverse of how the devil tells you it works. He didn't get strength and then went to Pilate. He took courage and therefore he got strength. And I think part of that taking courage has to do with the protest. It's strange, you know, but when you obey God in one thing, it comes, becomes easier to obey him in another. Um, unbelief is the same. Disobedience is the same. Sin once, you'll sin twice. It's much easier the second time. But obedience becomes a good habit. I think it was far, far easier for him to go into Pilate because he had just stood up to the Sanhedrin. And that's why you'll find in your Christian life that when you take a stand on the Lord's side, everything becomes a little bit easier to do. Even the things that you think are going to be so hard, and perhaps they even stop you hurdling the hurdle, they become easier. Why? Because you've stood. Of course, you've stood. 
and look at what they're able to do. They're able to go to Pilate to ask for the body, and in the midst of a seething crowd, they're able to take him down, to lovingly cover him with spices, and to carry him away, and to entomb him, and to roll the stone on the face of the tomb. Nothing secret about them anymore, is there? Nothing secret about them anymore. Secret discipleship is a pain, right? It's a pain for you who are in that condition. It's a pain for others. And it's like a lead weight around your ankles. These two people were entirely different from this evening onwards. Last of all, and very quickly, why did they do it? The answer is simple. Because they loved the Lord. That's why they did it. I suppose love is always revealed in the sacrifices we're prepared to make and the price we're prepared to pay. Joseph gives the linen. Nicodemus gives 34 kilos of liquid myrrh and aloes. You're talking a fantastic amount of money. You know, this is seldom mentioned, but it's not all that different to Mary when she broke the alabaster box that was worth thousands and thousands of pounds. Jesus appreciated that act. And he said that wherever the gospel would be preached, the love of Mary would be proclaimed. A love that was revealed in the breaking of the alabaster box. As we heard last night, the love of Christ for ourselves was revealed in the breaking of the body. That's what released the fragrance of the Lord. That's what makes it possible for us to feed upon him as the bread of life because he was broken for our sakes. Is this not worthy of proclaiming as long as the gospel is being preached that these two men gave what they had too because they loved the Lord? It was the same love that made Moses, <laughs> that made Mary break the box, the same love that made them embalm the Lord. It's like the psalm that we're just going to sing. I'll pay my vows now to the Lord before his people all. Uh, maybe time for somebody here too uh, to do that, to pay their vows. Uh, we sang earlier the psalm which says, well, when I will recover, I will pay my vows. But here's another one. I will pay my vows to the Lord before his people all. Uh, let's turn to the psalm and singing. Psalm 116 on page 396. And the tune is Cunningham at verse uh, 13. <coughs> I'll of salvation take the cup. On God's name will I call. 
I'll pay my vows now to the Lord before his people all. Dear in God's sight is his saint's death. Thy servant, Lord, am I, thy servant sure, thine handmaid son. Uh, which uh, Spurgeon, I think, pointed out long ago was a sign that David's mother was a good woman. My bands thou didst untie. Thank offerings I to thee will give. And on God's name will call. Now here he repeats it. I'll pay my vows now to the Lord before his people all. Where? Publicly within the courts of God's own house. Within the midst of thee, O city of Jerusalem. Praise to the Lord give ye. Let's stand to sing. Amen. Hey.